Hello and welcome to Accent of Woman. I'm Ayan Shirwa. On today's program, we look at some of the issues affecting trans and gender diverse communities in Australia. And in the second half of the program, we play a snippet from the event Flesh, the Law, and Black Humanity. Amalia Tolu, a proud for a Fafin woman of colour, opens the first half of the show, followed by a speech from Associate Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. Sandy is a Wurundjeri academic and creative practitioner. Sandy's speech was part of the event Transgender Communities, Law Reform and Feminism. My name is Amalia Tolu. I'm a Fafafine trans woman of colour. I do performance as well as speak, uh, public speaking. Um, I love to engage with community um, and use the intersectionality of race, gender, and my uh, life experiences. So um, things that I feel passionate about and things that have affected me as well. Amawa, if we could start from the beginning. So you migrated from New Zealand to Australia as a kid. Can you tell us what that transition was like? Okay, uh, in terms of uh, cultural transitions coming to a different country, um, it was a big challenge because when I came from when I came from New Zealand, uh, I was uh, surrounded by a lot of Pacific Island uh, families and friends and school children. So coming migrating from New Zealand at the time to Australia, uh, there was a it was, for me it was a big cultural shock um, in terms of just the way you know just just people's you know the physical appearance of people. Uh, just the way people were in general, just their ways that um, people viewed stuff, or like being around school school kids who had a different way of looking at life or viewing stuff. Um, what I was used to uh, as a as a Pacific Island culture, or the connection of how important family and church uh, to to you or to your well-being, and that was a, it was a whole different take going into a a, a white-dominated school who um, who have different ways of looking at um, family or the way they connect with people. Mm. In an article for Archer magazine that you co-wrote with Bobak Saeed, which is an excellent article called All Hail the Queen, um, you briefly touch on this gorgeous friendship that you had with two cisgender Pacifica Islander girls. Can you tell us how that friendship developed and also um, how it changed your experience of school? I came across these uh, two Pacific Island girls that were at a high school that was further down the road. And for me, it was a real eye-opener to have, um, you know, two Pacific, you know, a Tongan and a Fijian girl. Yeah. Um, just just two girls that didn't have issues with who I was or the way I was or any mannerisms that I displayed that wouldn't be kind of, uh, um, you know, of the general high school uh you know, teenager, male teenager at the time. And it was just lovely to have the, um, these two females 
who I could just express myself, be comfortable in my skin to be around mm. and not have to give a full explanation. Yet they kind of understood the concept of, of um, family within Pacific Island mm. realms. Prior to the passing of the births, deaths and marriages registration amendment. Oh, sorry, that's a mouthful. So prior to that, (laughs) so prior to that passing, a person like had to undergo surgery to affirm their sex on their birth certificate. Obviously, that is no longer the case. What do these changes mean for trans and gender diverse communities in terms of housing and so on? Definitely, I think it, I, I think it means it's it's the good changes that have come that will be coming into effect, and um, that the the House of Representatives had voted on here uh, in terms of you know the you know health medical stuff for trans and gender diverse people is quite expensive. If you're looking at going on the hormonal stuff and going long term processes, and even that there's loopholes and red tape to go through. So to allow some of these people, you know, in terms of identifying is 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 a personal step for someone to feel good about themselves. Uh, the implications, um, not having to feel they need to um, spend, you know, because it's, it's really expensive if you're going down the the, you know, wanting to change and stuff track. And so to have your identity especially validated, you know, someone that does, you know, someone that may not have the finances to, you know, to surplus, you know, you know, their identity changes is huge. You know, it's not even just medical for transgender diverse people. It's also housing, employment. You know, for us, you know, we have a high unemployment rate within trans and gender diverse communities. That contributes to your well, you know, even just your mental well-being. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, you're, you know, going for housing, and you know, they're looking at a marker that says, well, you know, these, these, you know, discrimination. You know, it may need be direct. That there's that discrimination that a trans or gender diverse person may feel when they're going for a housing or going to, you know, a, a rental place market, a rental housing situation where they're asked to provide ID, mm. and that's where stuff is, um, you know, th- these laws that are coming into effect. That's where it weighs in heavily in terms of trying to uh, support you know, or advocate for, you know, you know, just the rights of, you know, that it's okay for trans people or gender diverse people not to necessarily go on hormones, that it's okay if you identify with whatever gender you are, that that's what we will go with and legally put on whatever thing. It, it has huge, like, mental... Um, it has huge mental well-being benefits. I'd like to start by acknowledging the always owners of the land on which we're meeting today. Um, it's amazing always to be on Kulin Nation and to have the welcome that we got was just lovely. Um, I think it reminds us of the importance of um, connecting where we are with everything that's happening to us at the moment um, in this space. I'm a senior Aboriginal person. 
I'm a Wiradjuri person. I have to say Wiradjuri very carefully here because it's not Wiradjuri, it's Wiradjuri, um, which is in the area that's now known as New South Wales. Um, it's the largest First Nations community in New South Wales. Um, I've been an academic for 27 years um, and I'm an associate professor and deputy head of school of creative industries um, at the University of the Sunshine Coast. I'm also a transgender non-binary person and I'm telling you all of this because there's a power in telling the stories of who we are and I think it's important for us to reveal only as much as we're comfortable revealing as well. And so I say all of, all of this and give you the, my laundry list, but we all have that laundry list of who we are and it forms how we are in the world. As someone who's part of a university and multiple communities, um, who I am informs everything that I do. I don't leave my identity as an Aboriginal person, as a transgender person at the gates. And my academic work also is actually about gender, so that makes sense. But I'm, you know, an associate professor of music, so I'm also across a space that is in the creative practice area. I work on First Nations diversity, performance and representation, and I find ways, hopefully, to tell our own complex stories and, um, and think about how those stories can be heard. Um, so I start from the position that um, the academy is dangerous for First Nations peoples. And I also start from the position that the academy is dangerous for transgender peoples and actually a whole lot of other people as well. Um, so the intersections of some of those spaces are particularly treacherous. And I also start from the position that the academy doesn't get let off the hook with that. It has a responsibility to us. It's publicly funded. Just like governments, um, they have a responsibility to us. Uh, Public institutions have that responsibility. They have to treat us equitably and they have to work for us. So I think I also start from the position that our worlds should be better and free of any challenges to who we are. Um, in fact, they should be celebrating what we choose to share. So a university should be um, on notice that many of us will not share this if we're blocked or challenged for who we are, and if we just have to keep arguing for our existence, which is tiring and actually really boring, um, we, we've got to get them to do the work that supports us, you know, not that's working against us. Uh, and there's a point in which that resistance, not incorporating us, not including us, and not having those conversations, is a kind of violent exclusion. So... <clears throat> Importantly, and you know, obviously one of the things that we're talking about tonight is feminism and feminisms. Um, importantly, feminisms that, that exclude transgender women and gender diverse people are not born of some sort of grassroots approach. They came from the academy, squarely, they did. You know, uh, followed the trajectory and the academy absolutely fostered this. Um, and it has a responsibility to correct some of that. Where these exclusions still exist, they're formed by this sort of pathologised framing and these ideas of truth and consistency that conservatively challenge the radical and pedestrian, radical and pedestrian, work required to support a diverse community. We actually need that. We need change. If the Academy sees its role to seek out inconsistencies, no one's lives operate like that. 
you know, if they're just trying to find out the inconsistencies in our story, um, guess what? We change, <laughs> and that's normal. People shift and change over time as they have every right to. We're using different language than we used 10 years ago. It's not a mistake, that's growth. That's a good thing. Um, earlier this year, and for the first time, I, um, I made a public announcement um, that I am and have always been transgender. I also acknowledge that I've never felt that I had a language for expressing this before. For the most part, I received support from family, friends and work colleagues, actually really lovely support. Um, but I also got some feedback. Um, a lot of stuff on social media, some stuff face-to-face -face, and some private messaging. It's challenging, quite frankly. I got, um, but you've never said this before. Now, I've been an academic for 27 years, so I've written a lot of stuff. And absolutely, I wrote a whole lot of things that are inconsistent with my um, current position. Because I woke up this morning and I was a different person than I was 27 years ago. Surprise, surprise. And this is seen as a kind of inconsistency instead of a kind of growth. Because there is this idea of matching and patterning against that. So I've got, you've published about being a woman and a lesbian, correct. Um, I also got declaratives in the form of a question. Um, you, you know those ones. So one person asked me if I was exhausted after 50 years of gender questions and wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be easier just not to say anything? Um, yeah, and I mean, that was a sort of kind... There was a kindness behind it, but it was not particularly kind. I got, you're confused, a lot. Um, and I got, I'm sorry, you're struggling, a lot. Um, which I wasn't, by the way, uh, at all. In fact... I'm 53, and for the first time in my life, I wasn't struggling. <laughs> I was really happy. As people, we grow, we learn, and we discover our true selves, and we become possible. And that becoming possible was something to celebrate. It wasn't something to interrogate, you know? It was something to be happy about. So, of course, um, importantly, this isn't my first rodeo. I, you know, the patronising gaze that I experienced... Um, from people trying to understand my struggle um, was not a million miles from the white colonial gaze of sorrow. Um, and it had about as much reflection too. I was asked why I was denying that I was a butch lesbian. Um, all the while, like, I got that maybe ten times, Tess, on um, Twitter, I'd say. Um, all the while failing to care about who I am, how I feel and how I identify. I was represented as an ideal rather than a person. A loss to them, not a gain to me, um, as though it's a zero-sum, you know, arrangement. Um, and it's the ultimate colonial gaze. Well, it's the ultimate colonial glaze, really. You know, it's their reflections mattered more to them than my reality or, or my happiness, you know. Um, so as First Nations people, this is a, a trope we hear time and again. Wouldn't it be easier if we're doing this for your own good? Um, so the colonial projects or the church focus gender binaries and conformity onto multiple communities. I'm sure you're aware of that. It's no surprise, because erasure, it starts with dismissing diverse representations of who we are. That's, what it, that's its function. Um, this, is, this is working. You know, this is correct. This is the colonial project writ large to deny diversity, to deny people allow, being allowed to be who they are. Um, 
I'm doing some work at the moment on a project that looks at challenging this kind of symbolic annihilation, and I, I hope out of it we hear stories of people's lives, the sort of funny, challenging, exciting, the things that will move forward um, and will move us forward in conversation and, and together. You know, and I'm aware of the fact that it is sometimes these organisations that are there as ally sp allied spaces like Indigenous X, of which I'm an ambassador. We have Dr Tess Ryan here in the audience today who is also somebody who works with and writes for Indigenous X. You know, when, um, when I uh, came out, maybe, <laughs> when I revealed um, who I was, it was the first place that I went to. I wanted to go there to say, look at what gender diversity means internationally for First Nations communities. Look at what it means for all of us. Look at the opportunities that are there if we can share this, if we can share the power of diversity, and if we can share the power of people's realities. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Woman on 3CR Community Radio. We're so excited now to bring you a snippet of an event called Flesh, the Law and Black Humanity. The event was presented by SiteWorks and the group Loving Feminist Literature. So just to give you a little bit of background, Claire G. Coleman is a writer from Western Australia. She identifies with the South Coast Noongar people. Her family are associated with the area around Ravensthorpe and Hopetown. And she wrote her black and white fellowship winning book, Terra Nullius, while travelling around Australia in a caravan. Timmer Ball, our second guest, is a non-fiction writer whose work is influenced by working across urban planning, zine making and other creative forms. She grew up in Biraranga, Melbourne, but her heritage is Baladong Noongar from Western Australia on her mother's side. In 2017, Timmer won the Western, Westerly magazine Patricia Hackett Prize, and she has written and published for a range of publications, including Cordite, um, The Lifted Brow, Mianjin, The Griffith Review, and other anthologies. So that's our guest. And just a, uh, a little bit about myself. I uh, call myself, I suppose I read post-colonial feminist theory, black feminist theory. And I, I'm working at the moment as a practice-based scholar in the family violence and community sector. And where I hear a lot of talk about uh, women's empowerment but there is no critique of power of the state. We're not allowed to actually criticise it and talk about it and all the violences of the state. So I think it's very important to focus on that today, which is one of the themes that I've brought in. So I'm going to just address this to both of you. Could you talk a little bit about how you have imagined black <coughs> features in your work? People often look to Aboriginal speculative and futurist fiction, futurist fiction thinking there's going to be some improvement in the lives of um, black people and I don't write that because it's been 231 years on this continent and things haven't got better. 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, we actually instituted the Northern Territory Intervention which by any definition is apartheid. So if, if 10 years ago they can suspend the Racial Discrimination Act and nobody stopped them, we, um, we have not got very far. So I don't write, um, I often say, because people always say, why don't you write happy endings? And I say, I'll write one when we have one. <laughs> and I think that's a reasonable thing. Uh, Aboriginal women are still not safe. Women of colour in this nation are not safe. 
um, queer women are not safe. Uh, so why do, why do we think of this idea of writing a future where we haven't un yet unpacked the past? So I use the future to unpack the past. I, I write a future where things haven't improved that much so that I can interrogate, the, um, interrogate now you from the future. And that's a kind of different approach to most people, but it's the best way I can think of to look into where we are rather than writing the past to look at the present or writing the present to look at the present. Why not look at it from the future when things haven't changed? Yeah, it's interesting the direction you've gone in because I kind of, I guess, equally feel pretty pessimistic, I think. I think a lot of the times... Um, Indigenous futurism, um, speculative fiction writing is broadly seen as being hopeful in some ways. But I think, yeah, I think it is really... I mean, obviously, you want to imagine a future where there's at least some sort of transformation. Like, I'm very... I very kind of reluctantly want to use words like decolonisation, because mm. we haven't even vaguely grappled with colonisation. So it seems so naive to think that the future is going to be decolonial and sort of black-led. And I think I think we go just through sort of cycles of change and even just going back to a conversation we were all having before we formally started, I think there's so much money to be made by white Australia from the so-called black problem, you know, sort of closing the gap, the fact that we're constantly disempowered and disempowered in a way is kind of a light description in a way. People make a lot of money from that, <laughs> you know, whether it's sort of we're talking about lawyers. I mean, recently I've been coming across a lot of um, white lawyers who are working in native title in particular and it's interesting because they get that kind of almost dual opportunity of a making a pretty having a sort of prestigious well-paid type career but they sort of get to be sort of white savior do-gooders working in sort of native title and you sort of almost imagine i don't know it's like there's this whole industry built from the dispossession of land culture language and the ongoing violence. So some, there's, the, there's this really cynical part of me that's kind of like, and it could almost be like a speculative novel again, that it's almost like a white trickery or form of control to make it look like things are changing because we have native title or, you know, there's an awareness that we need to improve this country because we have the whole closing the gap narrative. But really, it's just in a way for white people to have a career in some ways. That's how sounds really horribly bleak <laughs> but yeah I don't know it's just the cycle of things it is hard to want to jump in it's hard to imagine jumping into a future where things have radically changed well I just think it's it's interesting that people in colonized countries all around the world they have this genre called post-colonial studies or post-colonial literature it'd be really great to have that here except we're not post-colonial yet <laughs> uh, it, it, we just we are still colonized the colony is still operating exactly the same way as it always has mm -hmm. so i'd love to be post-colonial and and study post-colonialism <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be fantastic but and like just talking about cl um, uh, closing the gap i i wrote a piece for the Saturday paper on the 10-year closing the gap report 
The official government report, if you look at the summary, it says that they're on track for five of the ten aims for closing the gap and um, had succeeded, partially succeeded at two, and the other three they hadn't done anything. But if you look at the actual numbers, they had no improvement of, in any of them. They'd actually... Because I, I went back to the original numbers in the, in the raw data and looked at what they actually discovered... And they had not actually closed any of the gaps. So there's this massive government funding of, um, like I think there's billions of dollars involved in closing the gap, to not do anything. The only things that had improved, the only one they had actually partially closed, was the gap of specifically percentage of children at school. And the government hadn't done that because they hadn't put any money into that. The Aboriginal communities had done that. So the only one that it was actually closing, we'd done ourselves. All that government money goes nowhere. And you often hear about this concept of the $30 billion spent on Aboriginal affairs every year. Um, so far, the people have assessed that money and 20, at least $29 billion of that goes to white organisations for their administration costs. And it just doesn't get to actually do anything. None of it does anything. So I think we need to, um, we need to stop thinking that the government's even trying to do anything to fix any of our problems. That's just amazing, both um, Tim and Claire, to say that because I think that leads us on into thinking about the value of the commodification of black bodies. And that I, I don't know if anyone knows Arundhati Roy, the um, Indian um, feminist and eco warrior. She said there's a lot of money in poverty, there's a lot of money in race. So, yes. and I think that what Timur was talking, and there is a whole thing called racial capitalism, which I'm just reading this amazing book on. But reading books is like, <laughs> but as Timur was saying, that, that idea that we're being cynical, the idea that we're being, there's something wrong with us, instead let's flip that around and let's talk about how we need to be politically savvy. You know, we are naive. There is so much naivety going on, and I would love, in a way, this getting everyone together like this is a way of just thinking, can we just get rid of that and stand here and see that as complete naivety and the truth and always, always follow the money um, because there's so much money and actually I know there's some people from academia here as well, maybe later on you can tell us, but if you look at all the indigenous um, scholarship units, the heads of units, the principal investigators, all of those are white people and actually when you're sitting on the committee, a friend of mine sits on the committee of going through those papers, the applications and all it takes for a PI principal investigator to say that they have connection with communities, you know, it's literally throwing a few dot paintings in or saying the word yarning as a methodology, and they think that's enough to get in, and it is. <laughs> it's, it's that bad, is what we're saying, right? And that is the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed today's jam-packed program. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. 